Welcome to NBS Bibliotalk, the Coinbook Lover podcast. This is our second episode, so some of you already know what we're doing, um, but for any new listeners, we're just going to go over it real quick. Uh, we are a quarterly podcast, and we'll be interviewing a different guest each episode, someone who is either a collector of numismatic books or a dealer or is in some way involved in the industry and can give us some new insights. I am Leanna Spurrier, and I am your host. I am coming from a background of collecting coins as opposed to books, so I'm here to kind of mediate and make sure that our guests aren't going to go over anyone's heads since they are experts in the field. So my goal is to really just make anything that they're sharing accessible to any numismatic audience. We are funded by the Numismatic Bibliomania Society, which is a whole club for coin book lovers. Uh, if you have not heard of them or check them out, please do so. Their website is coinbooks.org, and they have a free email publication called The Asylum that goes out every Sunday, as well as a print publication called The Asylum. So if you have not heard of them, go check them out. It's a fantastic organization and a great way to interact with some other coinbook lovers. In the meantime, we are going to get right to our interview. This episode, we are interviewing George Colby of Colby and Fanning Numismatic Booksellers. They're a pretty big dealer at the moment in the industry, so if you have not heard of them before, you can look at their website at numislit.com. Otherwise, let's get started. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. So, if you could briefly introduce yourself, I'm sure most of our listeners have probably heard of Colby and Fanning, um, but just in case they haven't, to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Okay, I'm uh, George Colby. Um, as a young boy, I loved books and uh, read voraciously and was also a uh, coin collector starting at about age 10 or 11. And uh, at some point in time, uh, the two interests merged in my uh, 20s, I was a part-time coin dealer, just uh, on a very low-key basis, uh, but I started buying lots of coins, different kinds of coins, and started buying books and uh, got interested in the books, and uh, that's where things started out. So what do you do today in the business? Uh, today, I'm largely retired. My uh, partner, David Fanning, however, carries on the business full bore and is doing a wonderful job. So how did Colby and Fanning get started in the beginning? Well, let's see. I think back around 2007 or eight, David and I became acquainted with, with each other. And uh, he came out here to California once or twice, and both instances I gave him some nice consignments um, since my career was starting to, uh, to wind down and I was thinking of retirement. And uh, by 2010, we uh, decided to get together and form Colby and Fanning. Okay, so you were auctioning books long before Colby and Fanning was an entity. I go all the way back to 1967 when I issued my first fixed price list and through the 60s and early 70s, I think I issued 13 price lists and then uh, there was a dormant period and uh, 
got back into the business about 1974 or 5 and had my first auction in 1976. And uh, we've had uh, 150 some odd auctions now. So it's been uh, wow. a lot of work and a lot of fun. <laughs> so, how did that first fixed price list come to be? How did you get to that point? Um, somewhere along the line, I had heard about Frank Caton, and I started getting his uh, numismatic book auction sale catalogs. And that gave me some sort of basis to come up with values on things, such as they were at the time. And um, I started scouring Southern California bookstores. At the at the time, there were, oh, must have been 20, 30 bookstores where I would regularly buy books uh, using the cadence sales as my basis for values and uh, started putting out fixed price lists. Back then, it was a very minor business, and I was just sort of having fun. It wasn't until the early 70s when Frank Caton had the George Fold Library sales, and both of those were wildly successful people like Harry Bass and Armin Champa and John Adams and on and on uh, participated in that sale. And uh, by 1976, it was possible to make a living selling rare and out-of-print numismatic books. So what drew you to the books? I mean, you said you started off collecting coins themselves. What was it that kind of drew you off into the book side of it? Before I could read, I would take uh, picture books to bed with me and try to figure things out. And, and uh, my mom and grandmother read to me, and I just always loved loved books. And uh, my career as a coin dealer wasn't very successful. <laughs> I'm uh, perhaps not aggressive enough to uh, to be in that trade, but uh, the books uh, just fit me. It was a perfect fit, and it was uh, wonderful to see that there was a, a way to make a living from selling books. And a less competitive environment, especially at the time, I'd imagine, than trying to be a coin dealer. Uh, yeah. Um, more, there's more information and knowledge necessary to do it than, uh, than coins, because coins are so well trod that uh, everybody mm -hmm. had access to the same information, where it wasn't so with books. Makes sense. Yeah, early, early on, I would, uh, and then the late 1970s, I started going to, to London uh, maybe once every year or so. And at that point, uh, Douglas Avalet Spink and Son uh, had a marvelous uh, book business as part of the coin firm, and uh, I was able to go there and buy thousands of dollars worth of books from him, and uh, he would. Conversely, be able to come here to California and buy uh, similar numbers from me because the market was so freewheeling and we each had our old clientele and it was a very exciting time. What kind of types of books were you dealing with at the beginning stages? At the beginning stages, it was really whatever I could uh, find at the uh, Southern California Antiquarian bookstores. I bought everything and anything. I mean, it didn't matter if it was... Uh, a book printed in the 1500s or or an out-of-print book uh, that was 10 years old, anything 
that was saleable, I would handle them. That pretty pretty well goes across my entire career. It's only uh, only the books that come your way that you're able to. Uh, you can't pick and choose what to buy. I mean, my my motto was always to uh, to buy whatever I could, whenever I could, even if it meant mortgaging the house. That works. Well, I did it once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> my, my family wasn't too happy about it, but it all worked out. So. so did you find a lot of numismatic books in those like general and antiquarian bookstores? At, at the time, yes. Um, huh. There was, um, just to give you an odd example, there was a bookstore in Long Beach, California called Bertrand Smith's Acre of, Acres of Books. And they just bought tons of books. And I would go there once every month or two. And I wouldn't buy many really wonderful rare books, but I would buy early edition red books, sometimes 10, 15, 20 of them just in a couple of months. And there'd be a couple of first editions snuck in there. And it was uh, that way, really, uh, got up into Hollywood Boulevard and and, uh, found the nicer books, sometimes some really rare things. Interesting. We don't, you know, nowadays I don't think of finding a lot of older numismatic books in generalized bookstores. No, they've all disappeared. And uh, back then there was a publication called Antiquarian Bookman's Weekly. And every week this publication came out, eight and a half uh, by five and a half and maybe three, four, five hundred pages, believe it or not. And they would have sections devoted for books for sale and they would also run ads for book wa- books wanted, and I advertised widely uh, to buy to buy books on coins. And I mean, back in those days, I mean, uh, not a day of the week passed where I didn't have a package package or two of books coming my way. It was sort of a, a funny sort of way, a precursor of the internet. <laughs> yep, I can see that. Yeah, so love and and values were far from uniform, and you just sort of bought uh, bought books and did what you have. I bought Charles M. Johnson's library in the. He was an A and A member of the Board of Governors, and he had a wonderful library. Um, I had agreed to buy his entire library, which was very wide-ranging in American books, and as far as foreign and ancient books, he had everything that was written in English. And uh, the day we agreed to uh, that I would uh, buy his library, he died. And about 10 months later, his son contacted me after having sold the foreign part of the library to my friend Douglas Avell in London, and he offered me the American part of it, and I ended up paying for the American part what I had anticipated I would have to pay for the what we agreed that I would pay for the entire library. And uh, I just sort of sucked it up and raised all the prices on the uh, on the books that I bought, and they all sold almost immediately. There you go. That really changed the book market. Uh, so when was that sale? Uh, that was largely, I just uh, sold the books privately outright. So most of them never got to sale. Okay. 
So what were some of the highlights of that library? Oh, he had a complete set of the numismatists. He had a complete set of the American Journal of Numismatics. He had a, a nice copy of Browning's work on quarter dollars that was uh, written in 1925, and only 100 copies were made. And, and I actually I sold that probably the day or two after I bought the library. Somebody called and asked for the book, and I went and got it and, and quoted them a price. And um, when, <laughs> when they got it, they were thrilled to death because it turned out to be B, B. Max Mel's copy which I hadn't even realized at the time. <laughs> they got a good deal there. They got a good deal, yeah. <laughs> they certainly did. So I've been told that your um, ninth sale in 1982 was a particular success. Yeah, actually it was in 1981, which oh, is kind of, kind of funny because it was patterned after one of the large format Chapman sale catalogs. And the one we used to pattern the front cover, we ended up using those sale dates. So, so we had the wrong sale dates on the cover of the catalog. Um, but anyway, the catalog itself uh, had a wonderful selection of books covering the numismatic spectrum. Um, and uh, the major consignment, which was sold anonymously at the time, was from the uh, Essex Institute in Salem, Massachusetts. And many, many of those works belonged to Matthew Adams Stickney, who was a famous uh, 19th century collector, early 20th century. And uh, those books brought fantastic prices. There was a Chapman catalog of the uh, Hunter collection with plates, which before the sale, it was a $500 or $1,000 catalog. Well, it ended up selling for $9,000. I called the Essex Institute librarian after the sale and told him how much his books had sold for. And he said, oh, you mean the whole sale, don't you? <laughs> and uh, it, was, uh, man, it was just a wonderful time. And uh, so many people were actively buying books. There's a fellow in Northern California named Jess Patrick who was very, very active at the time. And he must have been the underbidder on two dozen very expensive lots. And I don't, I don't he may not have gotten a lot in the entire sale. Uh, and um, Armin Champa attended the sale. Harry Bass attended the sale and uh, many, many other uh, well-known people at the time. So aside from having a few major collectors who were very active at the time, was there anything else going on in the market, you think, that made it particularly successful? Well, the 81 sale was kind of, it just took place at the exact right time. The, the coin market was going into the doldrums, but there's been uh, just a wildly uh, profitable time before that time, and and coin dealers were still flush with the cash, and coin collectors had cash, and it just culminated with the wonderful books in that sale to bring, uh, you know, unheard of prices. So were there any items in that sale beyond the one catalog you mentioned that went for 9000 um, that particularly stood out to you as being unique or particularly interesting? Oh, golly. Um, there, 
that's always a hard thing, uh, a hard thing to answer because almost every sale has something really unusual and wonderful. Um, it did have the Max Mel's set of the American Journal of Numismatics. And uh, my friend Jack Collins and I had bought it outright from Henry Clifford, who was a well-known uh, Southern California collector. And we thought it was going to bring a huge price. Uh, however, <laughs> the uh, the person who we thought was going to bid very highly on it decided to go to the bathroom a few few lots before it it came up for sale, and he missed it, and it sold for a reasonable price. So. That was one of the disappointments. <laughs> <laughs> what a reason to miss a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, nature calls, I suppose. So you've mentioned Max Mel a couple times. Can you tell me a little bit about who he was? Um, probably. Well, without doubt, he was the most famous coin dealer of the t- first half of the 20th century. He had uh, over 100 auction sale catalogs. Uh, he sold the finest collections. Uh, he had uh, His auctions were never public, um, and uh, there were a lot of stories about how he sold coins in the sales beforehand, uh, sometimes uh, questionable. And uh, he just sold all the rarities, 1913 nickels, 1804 silver dollars, on and on and on. So then did he also have a particularly large library, or are these just a few pieces that happened to come from him? You know, he must have had a fairly good library. I think a number of the things... uh, 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 books in his library uh, were handled later on by uh, Abe Kossoff. I think the set of uh, American Journal of Numismatics I just uh, mentioned, I think Abe probably sold that to Henry Clifford. And I, um, there was never a, a record of his library, so it's really sort of hard to say. About three weeks ago, believe it or not, um, I'm becoming a numismatic book collector on my own my own right i'm having some fun but anyway i ended up buying um his personal copy of uh, crosby's early coins of america in a nice leather binding just popped up in a, an aquarium bookseller in southern california very cool yeah yeah it was really pretty <laughs> amazing pretty amazing mm-hmm so how has the internet changed the book side of the coin industry when I first started, I could sell anything, I mean, any kind of book or catalog, and uh, now the market has become far more selective, um, and only books that are important for their content or are collectibles in their own right uh, are really in demand nowadays. The whole market has become far more selective. And really rare things are doing as well as ever. Uh, Really common things are impossible to sell. And uh, and as far as from the collector's perspective, it's a great uh, great, uh, thing because you can go online and uh, 
by any any common book you want. They're all there. Where before uh, you had to uh, go through someone like myself to uh, to get the out of print titles. So have the prices on the rare books gone up dramatically with having more information from the internet? Uh, certainly, in some areas they've gone up a lot. In other areas, not so much. Um, it's really just, uh, it's hard to predict. Uh, I think David's sales in the last year or two or three have, there's been a fair pickup in values and percentages of lots uh, sold, but it's still unpredictable. And uh, if, if I'm honest, all through my entire career, uh, book prices have always been unpredictable. There's no red book of values. They fluctuate quite a bit. Do you think that that trend will continue, or would there be a way in the future to have some kind of like red book, more standardized pricing? My um, guess is it will continue um, just as tastes and interests uh, change and uh, uh, I'm not very good at (laughs) (laughs) predicting the future let's put it that way prognosticating there we go (laughs) (laughs) had to dig that one out (laughs) it's interesting to me that it's so irregular with the books whereas with coins you know there's so many records of auction sales and 20 different price guides out there and well, it's it's a function of the marketplace. I mean, it, at the height of my business, I had maybe 1,200 people on my mailing list worldwide, and you know, I, I don't. The coin dealers uh, probably have 12,000 or, or or more than the, more than that. Um, so the market is much more selective, and sometimes there's there's only one person looking for a book it's not uh, not going to bring a huge price that makes sense yeah, unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so this might be a hard question but what are some of your favorite items that you've had the opportunity to handle oh that really is a hard question and and uh yeah, to, to name specific books, it's really hard. One thing I did do over the years is whenever I bought a book that I really personally liked, I just kept it on the shelf and, uh, and, and enjoyed it, sometimes for a year, sometimes for five years, sometimes for, you know, many years. And finally I would decide to sell it. Uh, but, uh, there's some, there's so many wonderful books that run, you know, from, 1514 for the first up the books you know still being published that are just wonderful in one way or another and I love them all so have you actually gotten to handle some like from the 1500s oh sure yeah the uh, the first book was written by a fellow named William Boudet and on uh, ancient Roman weights and coins and uh, I've handled, I don't know, uh, several of that uh, book, several copies. Uh, the first illustrated book was 1517 by Fulvio, and uh, it was basically a picture book of uh, Roman emperors as depicted on their coins. And I've, I've handled 
several of those. One it was a uh, copy printed on vellum, which might be the most expensive book I ever sold outright. Uh, Douglas Savile and I bought it at a London auction for uh, $35,000 perhaps, and uh, we placed it with a collector in Italy for a little over $50,000, so it was a nice uh, nice transaction and it was a wonderful privilege just handling the book. Wow. So how often do you run into things that are that old? Like is that is that a common occurrence or is that just once every every blue moon? Well, I mean when I sold my reference library there was a book in it published in 1579 and it had the first bibliography of books on ancient coins and uh, I'm trying to remember how many maybe there were 50 or 100 books uh, um, in that bibliography but really by the 1600s uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of books on coins and a lot in the 1500s too um, so they're not as rare as you might think they are although Many of the early books are in institutional libraries around the country. Uh, Christian uh, de Kazel published a bibliography of 16th century, 17th century, and 18th century numismatic books. And let me think, that's, uh, I don't know, must be 10 or 12 huge 500-page uh, uh, listings. He devoted a page to each book, usually with an, an illustration of the uh, title page. That's a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the uh, the American Numismatic Society Library, if I'm not mistaken, has something on the order of 150,000 different enter entries in their, well, they used to call it the card uh, catalog, but now, of course, it's all on the Internet. So if you've ever gone to the ANS, you get you can look at their entire library. You get an idea of the scope of numismatic literature. Mm -hmm. So this is a little bit tangential to book collecting, but surely out of curiosity, um, do you have any thoughts on why coin books started popping up in the 1500s and not prior to that? Um, a function of the Renaissance, I think. And, uh, Petrarch uh, wrote a little uh, article on ancient coins and some of the other uh, uh, popular figures, uh, early Renaissance figures, wrote about coins. Um, and uh, these people, the, the Renaissance people, they appreciated the art of the ancients and so coins were an integral part of that and they were fascinated by the portraits of Roman, uh, Roman rulers. That's really the start of it. They started collecting the coins um, because they had read and studied, uh, you know, all the, uh, all the ancient uh, Roman uh, leaders. And here, here they were, you could see their, uh, their visages on coins. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> This hadn't occurred to me to put it in that context, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it does. It does. They, they just uh, loved, uh, there's a uh, 
and you said you're mainly retired at this point, but when you were doing sales actively, how did you manage to pack up and deliver thousands of books without going insane? <laughs> well, you know, putting together an auction catalog was always stressful. And uh, getting the catalog done on time, back in the early years, I had to send it to a typesetter. And then once the typesetter had finished formatting it, I'd have to go through it and make all the typographical corrections. And then we'd have to check the corrections of the corrections to make sure they were uh, okay. And uh, in the early days of typesetting, there were no foreign accents. So I actually had to go through the entire catalog with the use rub-on letters to put all the foreign accents on uh, on all of the books in the sale. And then, of course, we would have to mail the catalog and then handle all of the bids. Um, back in the day, nowadays, if you get a couple hundred bid sheets, that's a pretty good sale. Back then, I think one sale I got close to 500 bid sheets. So it's a lot of, a lot of work involved in putting mm-hmm. together a sale. Anyway, that all comes to, uh, to packing after the sale. I, I just kind of enjoyed the mind, mindless activity of, uh, packing up these books. It was a nice break, break from all the, uh, the stress and, uh, uh, from most of the bigger sales, I would, uh, I usually had someone who would help me packing also, but, uh, yeah, I, sometimes we would, uh, some sales would approach 3,000 lots and 300 linear feet of books, which uh, is a lot of books. So it was mainly a one-man operation? Uh, pr- pretty much. It was always hard to find someone to work on a part-time basis and uh, once you get them all trained, they would often go on to something else. But there were one or two people who uh, stuck with me through the years and especially would just uh, uh, come and uh, spend several days and help me on the bigger sales uh, to get everything packed. But, uh, yeah, I mean, 300 linear feet of books going out to four or 500 customers, I mean, there's, talking probably a thousand packages or close to that. Man, how long would it take you to package up and get that many books out? A huge sale like that, it would take up to three weeks to do all the paperwork and packing and shipping. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's right. And I think David is quite fortunate. His uh, his spouse Maria does helps him with a lot of the packing. So that's uh, and I think they probably also have other people that help with the bigger sales too. So. so, you mentioned that at this point you've started collecting books yourself. Yeah, in a very sort of small way. Anytime I see something that I really like, I mean, if it's uh, uh, affordable, I'll buy it. Kind of, I mean, it's kind of a funny, uh, funny uh, change because uh, I've never done that before, except for my reference library, which I always bought that, bought books for that, for mostly for the information they contained. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any personal highlights of your collection? Oh, I've 
just really started in the last six, uh, six or nine months. I bought a, uh, a very nice copy of uh, Eckfeldt and Duas' 1850 book on uh, territorial and uh, pioneer gold coins that actually has the sample of gold dust uh, in the book and uh, a dozen other books uh, that are uh, I like. <laughs> I uh, From my sale, I sold my entire reference library, and I decided I just couldn't let go of the American Journal of Numismatics, so I bought back that set. Uh, and uh, also bought uh, my uh, leather-bound set of the Asylum, uh, which I'm happy to have. So has becoming a collector changed your view on the industry in any way? Yeah, nah, I don't think so. Uh, just uh, <laughs> book people are kind of crazy, and, uh, you know, so you have to take that into equation. Are you a book person? Um, I come from a coin collecting background. I like the books. They're not something that I actively collect at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm coming from the coin perspective. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you're you're probably uh, an exemplar of most coin collectors. They uh, uh, they just love the coins and um, not interested in books. It's a very very narrow subset. I mean, people like uh, the Norwebs didn't have hardly any coin books or nothing substantial, and so a lot of famous collectors never uh, formed a library. It's definitely a niche area of the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. uh, so since it is so a much smaller sector and very niche, is it a place where like individual collectors will significantly change the landscape over time? Yeah, I mean, people like Armin Champa um, really haven't talked about him. Uh, he was wildly enthusiastic about collecting rare books about coins and went to all the major auctions in the uh, 70s and 80s and 90s and bought everything in sight. Uh, often, he, if he liked the book, he'd buy three or four or five copies of it. Um, so he really probably is the most important single factor in the popularization of the antiquarian and rare coin book uh, business. Um, and you have other uh, uh, collectors. I mean, Dan Hamelberg since then, um, as you saw at his home uh, this last summer, has just an unparalleled collection. I mean, there's never been anything like the library Dan has, and I doubt there ever will be. It's uh, just fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's a huge library. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's mind-boggling. I mean, mm -hmm. he kept uh, taking us around, and you go downstairs and little storage rooms, and uh, upstairs, and uh, I mean, there were books everywhere. Mm -hmm. And all, pretty much all on American numismatics, and and mostly American coins. Uh, yeah, just amazing. Mm -hmm. So, are there any other individuals who have particularly influence the landscape? Well, John Adams, I should probably should have mentioned him before now. I mean, his 
help with Al Hoke when the Quarterman publications uh, reprinted uh, Attenelli's uh, bibliography of early numismatic catalogs and books. Uh, uh, that was uh, a great impetus to uh, popularize uh, early American auction sale catalogs. And John himself over the years has formed, I guess you could say it's one new wonderful numismatic library, but certain aspects of it over the years he has uh, parted with, and those have been really noteworthy sales. Um, he's a remarkable person. He, um, When he goes from one collecting area to another, uh, he will often decide that the area where he's no longer active and he'll sell the literature from that area, not not for the economic return, but just because he feels an obligation to uh, get that material out uh, in front of people who will use it. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, probably the biggest joy of my career, all the wonderful people that I have uh, been able to uh, become friends and colleagues with. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the different areas that John Adams has focused on? Well, back in the 80s, he put together a wonderful collection of 1794 large scents. Uh, and uh, Dave Bowers issued the fixed-price catalog of that collection, which has kind of become a classic work in its own uh, own sphere. And uh, when he sold that collection, I ended up selling uh, many, uh, many of, uh, of the books and catalogs uh, in his library on that topic. And then he's gone on to... Uh, putting together unparalleled uh, collections of early American metals. And uh, his Kamisha Americanas uh, uh, were just sold recently in a wonderful uh, Bauer sale. Like I remember seeing that sale come by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And, uh, and he's had other, other sales as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't talked at all about Jack Collins. He had uh, had a very strong influence on me. He uh, encouraged me to produce nicer catalogs and illustrated catalogs. And uh, he uh, woke up uh, one morning, I think, uh, 1977, 78, and he called me on the telephone and said he had just dreamed of forming... Uh, a uh, um, a group of uh, a uh, an organization for numismatic book collectors, and uh, that ended up with the Numismatic Bibliomania Society. <laughs> That's great! Just came from a dream. <laughs> I mean, yeah, seriously. I mean, he was all excited, and <laughs> <laughs> and Jack was a real visionary. Uh, I probably put in some of the hard labor to help form the numismatic bibliomania society, but the the concept and the uh, the name uh, um, are, are attributable to Jack. He uh, loved that sort of thing. 
<laughs> the name of the asylum. I mean, he was insistent about that. I thought it was too frivolous, but uh, not Jack. So how were you involved in the origination of the NBS? Well, he and I talked about it, and we decided that we would do something about it, and and we got together a group of people uh, at... Uh, the uh, ANA in St. Louis, what, 1979, I believe, and formally uh, decided to form the uh, the group. And uh, Jack and I uh, co-edited the first several issues. And uh, uh, since that time, it's gone on hard times and good times and um, mostly good times, and uh, right now it's doing wonderfully well. Uh, we have uh, Maria Fanning uh, producing a professional-looking publication, and uh, uh, the officers of NBS are uh, really uh, devoted to uh, uh, keeping it a, a popular endeavor. John Adams uh, helped out uh, a lot with NBS over the years in keeping it alive and promoting it, and as as have many others. Very cool. Yeah. Yes. Are you a member? Ah, I believe I am. I know I get the <laughs> asylum. <laughs> you, you, you had better be. <laughs> I need. If I'm not, I need to be. I haven't. Yeah, you. You I do. think I am. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you are. Yeah. I don't think Joel Oris would uh, not let, would let you get by without uh, making. <laughs> okay. So I have one final question. And I know it's a hard one. What is one book that you would recommend for any coin collector with a mild interest in literature that's not the Red Book? Well, if it's a mild interest in... You know, I don't think it's been published as such, but in the asylum... I think it was Len Augsburger who compiled uh, voting and uh, a list of the 100 best numismatic books or something like that. And I don't, I guess that's probably not available online, so you might have to buy uh, that issue of the asylum. But that's something NBS might think about popularizing and uh in some form online, or maybe they've already done it and I don't know about it, but that would give people a good idea of uh, some of the really nice and interesting books uh, on uh, on coins. Uh, I think it's probably devoted to American coins, so it's a little provincial, but uh, I think that would be a good place to start. Okay. I don't think it's online. At least I haven't run into it. If it is, yeah, it probably isn't. But that's something uh, I'll I'll mention that to the powers that be and see uh, see what we come up with. Mm hmm. Sounds like something that would be a very good thing to have available online for the beginning collectors to kind of get their feet wet. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I believe that's all I have. Unless there's anything that you would like to add. Uh, no. Uh, I've. Uh... Uh, enjoyed the conversation and uh, um, thank you for asking some very penetrating uh, questions and uh, it's been fun. 
At the end of each episode, I like to share a newer book that has recently come on the market because not all valuable books are old. Um, so there are so many new books coming out that it's kind of hard to sift through them sometimes. So one of the biggest name books that has come out recently is Whitman's 100 Greatest Modern World Coins. The 100 Greatest series has multiple different editions uh, through, you know, classic U.S. coins, ancients, uh, you name it, there's probably a 100 Greatest on it. And the Modern World Coins, I think, is a really good addition to that series. It looks like it's going to be a very interesting issue. Uh, it talks about the 1911 silver dollar pattern from Canada, which... Um, I've written about a few times for different articles, and it's a very interesting piece. So there's that to look forward to. And the 100 Greatest Books are always very well done. Like, they're very, they have a lot of nice, very large pictures. They're very well laid out. And I do some graphic design, so that's something that I really look for in a book. Um, so they're a gorgeous coffee table book to leave out in your home and share with others. So it starts in 1901 and goes up through present day, talking about different rarities from around the world that may sometimes get neglected because in comparison to older rarities, they may not be quite as, you know, impressive and well-known. But that doesn't make them any less value valuable in terms of the historical value that they have to offer and how important it is that, you know, we have their stories because a lot of them have really fascinating stories behind why they're included and why they are the greatest. So be sure to check out that book. Um, the 100 Greatest series are always an interesting look into history from a very numismatic perspective and always give new insights into the historical context the coins were created in. Uh, so this one was written by Charles Morgan and Hubert Walker and should be out this month, March of 2020. Pre-orders are available, uh, including online at Whitman.com for about $30 US. So I believe that wraps us up for this episode. Um, be sure to check out coinbooks.org to give a look at the Numismatic Bibliomania Society. And also, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast wherever you happen to be listening to it, that is appreciated as well. We are out on all major podcasting platforms and are also up on the NBS site. There are all kinds of different avenues for you to listen on. Um, and whichever one you're on, if you could give us a little feedback, that would be great. Uh, we'll be checking them and trying to make changes to the show in the coming episodes to make it whatever you all want it to be. We're always open to new ideas or changes that you'd like to see in the show because we really want this to be something that book lovers will enjoy. Like, that is that is the goal. So feel free to leave any comments, critiques, things you would like us to add, and we will see you next quarter. 